Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Theology Thursday. It is our third or fourth week into this, Doug. I can't remember what it was. We were just chatting about it a second ago. What week are we on? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think I know that any better than you. If I were a betting man, I would say this is the fourth week of it. Fourth week. That's what I was thinking myself. So it is Easter week, which is really exciting. So tomorrow we're actually going to be celebrating Good Friday together as a church, which we're really looking forward to. And then we've got some fun uh, digital services planned for the Easter uh, this weekend. There's a lot of folks that are really kind of bummed out that we're not, um, myself included, that we're not gathering this week. I was really looking forward to, I always look forward to Easter every year. It's awesome to see the whole church and, and everybody excited and worshiping Jesus together. But uh, given the scenario, God's still in control and we're still going to worship, whether that's digitally or, or however else. So we're still looking forward to the services this week. We've got some fun things planned. And Doug, you and I were talking just for Theology Thursday, given uh, that it's Easter week, it might, it might be appropriate to kind of talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And so- yeah. uh, Excited to talk about that a little bit today. Um, Doug, you want to get us started here? Because uh, we got a little bit of an outline here talking about just kind of why we believe in the resurrection of Jesus and why it's important to the faith. Hmm. Sure. So what what I'm laying out here is the basic case for the, um, the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. So the basic historical case for it. There are, you say, why we believe. There's a lot of different reasons why we believe. Uh, we believe because of the a work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. We believe because we trust those who have told us of it. Um, we believe for a variety of reasons. And this is something that uh, has helped me. Uh, these are some points that have helped me uh, because obviously, you know, no, nobody claims that our belief, uh, the central belief to Christian faith that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, nobody believes or claims that that's just this normal thing. And yeah, it's just an easy thing to, how could you not think that, right? Like there's obviously the, the whole point of it, even biblically speaking, is that this is a big deal. It's extraordinary. It's not something that usually happens. In fact, mm. it's something that only really has happened once in history. And so, um, and so th these are just some points that, that um, are usually made that, that I have found helpful and many have found helpful in um, kind of shoring up the, um, let's say, the intellectual basis for our faith. Cool. So it's worth saying, too, because I've gotten a few questions as we've been putting the Theology Thursdays out there. Um, you know, is this like apologetics? Is this just basic theology? Um, it's kind of everything in between. And so today, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, the hope is to kind of establish what the belief is as far as the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, as you mentioned too, Doug, there's, there's a couple of presuppositions that we have to get out at the beginning uh, in order for us to kind of get into the conversation. And there's, there's two of them specifically for this conversation. And uh, the first yes, of those, so, right, Doug, is that uh, God exists, right? Right. I mean, so, so we are... Um, we're not able to talk about everything. This is not going to be comprehensive. We're not going to be, there's a lot of different trails we could go down to. We could talk about the validity of eyewitness testimony. We could talk about general reliability of the gospels. We could talk about um, the, the, how widespread was the belief in the resurrection among the early church. A lot of different places, alternative explanations. We're not going to be able to discuss a lot of them. And so two of the things that we're not going to be able to discuss that we, um, that I am presupposing, and I think that these are somewhat insightful in and of themselves, is that number one, we are assuming, as you said, that God exists for the sake of our discussion, uh, that God exists and he is capable of working in extraordinary ways in our world. Um, 
So, and that's important because part of the thesis that we're talking about here, again, is not that Jesus rose from the dead and this is a normal thing that just everybody, um, you know, why, why, no, we're, we're arguing for this as a, as a unique, distinct event that God raised Jesus from the dead on that first Easter morning. Um, and, and then also uh, another thing that we are presupposing here is that the New Testament documents, whether we're talking about the Gospels or some of the other books of the New Testament, these constitute independent witnesses. So our Bibles are not just one book, okay? They're, they are a collection of 66 books, 27 in the New Testament. And each of them are by different authors who were um, uh, not necessarily understanding that I mean, I believe they all did understand they were writing the word of God when they were written, but not necessarily uh, uh, thinking about um, primarily about the fact like Luke is writing and thinking, well, what is Matthew saying? What is Mark saying? What is it like? They're, they're speaking independently. There is, a, there is a sense in which scriptures work together, but there is also a sense in which you get distinct voices from each and from each now, Doug, and, you said uh, when you say that they're all written by different authors, what you mean is that throughout the course of all of the books that are in scripture, there's differing authors for those the, books. Some of those authors human, have written more than one. When we're talking about the human authors, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's to which we believe they're all inspired by God, but here I'm just talking about the fact that the gospel traditions and the letters that we'll be citing are are independent works by different authors, all moved by the Holy Spirit. But, um, but the, so it's, so in other words, when we say Mark says something and Matthew says something, we're talking about two guys working, um, not necessarily in ignorance of each other. Like I do think Matthew depended on Mark or, or used Mark, but they clearly speak independently of each other as well, as is often, um, uh, and the case for that often comes up when you're dialoguing with skeptics and critics of the gospels, right? Who like to point out discrepancies. Well, if they, if they, if if this were not true, if they were, if they were not speaking as independent authors, using their the traditions that they used and using their own recollections of the events, then they would be and just simply copying one another um, with no critical eye and not desiring to to say their own things. Then they would all be virtually identical. But there are important distinctions between one another, what, what we would typically call apparent discrepancies between, between the two, like how many women were at the tomb and things like that, how many angels were at the tomb, right? Like if, if they're just simply copying one another, then you wouldn't have that. The fact that there are differences is enough to prove, it, it's a double-bladed sword, right? Like, so if somebody wants to argue against the gospels because there are, dis, um, there are differences between them, um, then it, that also uh, interestingly cuts in the gospel's favor because it shows that, 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 that there are independent witnesses that are not just saying the same things. Mm. So. so it's almost an argument for, a lot of times I hear it from kind of the, the negative side of it. Um, but like if somebody was going to make up a religion, you know what I mean? There are better ways to do that than kind of how the gospel is written. You know what I mean? Uh, yes, as far as establishing sure. a, a, a point of truth for that. But um, Doug, let's roll into this here. So the first point that we want to make just concerning the resurrection of Jesus uh, you have here is, is really the empty tomb, right? That's the, that's the big one standing there at the yeah. front. So uh, really, uh, yes, that's, that's the first. So the two things taking in conjunction with one another that are the essential backbone of the historical case are the empty tomb 
and the post-mortem appearances of Jesus. So those things taken side by side essentially constitute the case for it. Um, now, uh, so we'll take the first one uh, that you mentioned, the, the empty tomb. Um, so the first thing about to know about the tomb of Jesus is that according to uh, the sources, it was Jesus was buried in a known place. Okay, they knew where he was buried. Um, and, the and tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph, right? The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who is named in all four Gospels, interestingly, right? Mm -hmm. All four name him. Um, and, and a good case can be made. And for this, um, an interesting work on this is Richard Balkum's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. An interesting case can be made that in the Gospels, you have some individuals who are named and some who remain anonymous. And that one of the reasons why the Gospels just happened to name people like, so this week in this week's sermon, right? Who helped him carry the, the cross? Well, Simon of Cyrene, whom Mark calls the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is Mark giving us those details? Likely because they are part of the early Christian community. And Joseph of Arimathea is one of those individuals who is named in the gospel because he's named as somebody that can be consulted, whom everybody knows. It's almost as if I was like, don't you know, uh, our very own Alex Hauser says this, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, by the way, too, when I say that all four Gospels mention this, note, too, that when I speak the, of the Gospels as independent witnesses, I'm not, what I am not saying is the Bible is the word of God, and so you need to believe everything it says. I do believe that, but, I, but even somebody who doesn't believe the Bible, right, can look at this and say, okay, independent witnesses are saying these things. Okay. Gotcha. So, so you you're, you're, you're establishing a, you're establishing, um, I forget what it's called, but just an investigative, uh, uh, exploration of, of the truth that we have available to us. So looking yes. at the Bible as a historical document, we can see that there are independent authors that are writing these things. Right. right? And you don't need to believe that every word of it is true or everything in the gospels is true in order to uh, understand this or not in order to under uh, to disagree. In other words, you might disagree. You might say, well, I don't think there's any evidence that the dead were raised from the tombs when Jesus was was raised, as Matthew tells us, right? Yeah. Even so if, meaning, so even if you don't believe that, these things are still true. Sure. There's still good reasons for thinking these things. Yeah. So basically, you're saying that even if you're not a Christian and you look at these things and you and you don't necessarily believe them, you can still look yep. at this without believing it and still pull fact from that. You we're know, using them as still... historical sources, not not theologically inerrant sources in this cool. case. Okay. All right. Let's continue. Um, so, on. All right. So, so the tomb is, is no, and, and you also note that in all of the gospels, I was also note that in all of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all note that the women and name the women, again, they name them, the women who were there and say that they witnessed where his body was laid. So Matthew 27, 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there, sitting opposite the tomb. Mark 15, 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Luke 23, 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Okay, so they all note that the women saw it and they saw where his body went. Okay. Um, and this is interesting for several different facts. So if the tomb was known, right, then if you think about the early proclamation of Jesus as raised from the dead, which you get throughout the book of Acts, which is clearly a primitive Christian belief. It's not something that developed 
decades later or anything like that, right? If you're preaching Jesus has risen from the dead and his, his two physically risen from the dead in Jerusalem, and you're saying, and we know where everybody knows where the tomb is, then it's necessary that the tomb be empty, okay? Mm -hmm. Because there's no, there's, there's no, um, another interesting point on this is that there's no evidence that, that any of the opponents of the gospel, the early opponents of the gospel there in Jerusalem ever pointed to a, um, uh, the, the, the tomb, right? The, or the body of Jesus as counter evidence. In fact, quite the contrary. And Matthew has an interesting thing on this in his gospel in chapter 28, where it talks about how the um, how the 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 uh, Jewish elders went and bribed the soldiers and told them tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away and while we were asleep and if this comes to the governor's ears we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble and then Matthew says so they took the money and did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, this is interesting if you kind of trace this back and, and figure out what kind of must be behind this, right? What must be happening here is Matthew is explaining the Jewish way of explaining the empty tomb that was current in his day. So what is the explanation behind that? That there was an empty tomb that needed to be explained. So that's kind of an interesting thing there in the book of Matthew. That's cool. Oh, yeah. There was a there was a movie that came out recently because I know you and I are both movie buffs. Um, but there was a movie that came out, and I I shouldn't say it, but there's a lot of really bad Christian movies that are just not 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 great to watch. But oh there was one gosh. that came out kind of recently, which really was actually a fictional movie, right? So it's a fictional movie based on biblical events, and the entire premise of the movie was basically that Jesus was killed, and apparently he resurrected and it's from the perspective of a Roman centurion and his only job is to produce a body. That's it. Go find it, go find wherever the body is, bring it here and this whole thing will be done. And then they're getting paid to just produce any body or anything else. It was actually a fascinating movie. I really liked it. I don't know if you've seen it. Well, it's, well, it's an interesting place. It's an interesting thing. And, and really the key here, I think, if, if there's a takeaway is the idea that the early, the center of early Christianity is the very place where the tomb was. And the central proclamation of it is that the one who was placed in this tomb is not there, is that he was raised from the dead, right? So that's how we know, and again, all we're looking to prove from this, because there's other ways to explain an empty tomb, is that the tomb was empty, right? Like that, we're just establishing our first point here. The tomb was empty. That's all we need to know from it right? Mm. It's empty. How it got empty, we're not even there at this point. I'm just making the point that it was empty. Mm. Okay. Which is crazy enough in and of itself, right? Because it's not like, correct me if I'm wrong, Dub, but like a, a tomb is like a, a, not just a physically filthy place, but a spiritually filthy one. Like nobody would go in and start robbing tombs, right? Uh, well, no, tomb robbing was, was known then. And that was one of the possibilities. In fact, in fact, that's, that's essentially what the, the, the Jewish pe uh, elders here tell the soldiers to say is that the tomb was robbed. Um, okay. So it's, it's definitely- But what I mean for them spiritually, like nobody would go peeking in there to see if Jesus was in there dead or anything, right? Uh, well, tombs were, were regarded as unclean places. Obviously, you don't want to come in contact with the dead. And by doing that, you would render yourself ceremonially unclean. Uh, that takes I mean, a little yeah. bit of, uh, uh, 
takes us a little bit of field. But yeah, I mean, grave robbing, if all you had was the fact of the empty tomb, then grave robbing, grave robbing is a possibility for sure. Um, but, um, but, but right now, all we're looking to do is establish the empty tomb. I'll also add uh, uh, two more interesting things, and then we'll move on to our second point here, um, is that in the, uh, the narratives of the resurrection are also interesting in that um, they kind of, they're very sober. They, they lack legendary embellishment. And sometimes it's, um, in other words, almost as if they're just simply giving us what I, the eyewitness reports would have been. In other words, um, there's no, uh, there's no narrative of Jesus coming out of the tomb, right? It's just what they saw. They got there and it was empty. Um, and, uh, if you, if, if we say, well, that's not that extraordinary. Well, no, when you look at actual, there's other gospels out there, right? Like other early gospels out there. And when you look at the way they describe it, you could say, oh, this is what <laughs> embellishment looks like. Right, like this is what is done when they're trying to pile stuff on top of it to 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 make this into a real story. Story, um, for example, the Gospel of Peter talks about how a great voice came from the sky. Two men descended from it, entered the tomb, and then the soldiers see three men emerging from the tomb. Right, with the angels holding Jesus up. And, uh, they, and when they come out of the tomb, their heads are as high as the sky and, uh, and, the, and the head of the one leading, the head of Jesus is, went up above the skies and, and they heard a voice from the heavens saying, have you preached to those who are asleep? And a reply came from the cross, which was following the three figures and the cross said, yes. You know, like, like those are the kinds of things that happen. Like that's, if we're comparing it to actual texts, right? As opposed to just our speculation, that's what happens when legendary embellishment happens. The gospels are bereft. Of, it's, it's almost surprising how plain vanilla they actually are, which, I, which bodes well for their credibility. Um, also, you can note the lack of theological explanations. None of the writers really try to sneak in um, the, the theological implications of the resurrection. They're just narrating the facts. If it weren't for the miraculous nature of the event itself, we would say these look like decent eyewitness events, right? With enough variation between the different witnesses to show that they're, that they're, they're, the collusion is not there, if you will, but um, enough similarity to say, well, these are, you know, there's, these guys are agreeing what that, that, that tomb was empty. And again, that's all we need to establish at this point, that the tomb was empty. That's all I have to say about the empty tomb. That's all I have to say about <laughs> That's that. all I have to say about um, that. One of, the, one of the most fascinating things to me about the Synoptic Gospels is exactly that, that it's, it's like statement of events, statement of facts. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus thought. Then this mm -hmm. happened. Then this happened. Then yeah. this happened. There's not a lot of why. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and later on, when we get into all the epistles from, from Paul and the other um, writers, it's, we get a lot more of the theological implications. We get a lot more of the theology. We get a lot more of just kind of the teaching. Like, but as far as, you know, we're kind of walking through here, which is, you know, to your point, Doug, this is the best place to go. If you are a skeptic, if you really are listening to this and you're like, oh, well, I don't, I don't really know if I believe in Jesus. You can look at the synoptic gospels as historical text. It's simple yeah. statement of fact and, it's, and it's, events. Yeah, and it's not as if they don't attach implications to it. It's just that they're not as explicit 
and it's you know it's a matter of emphasis so the letters sure. that's what they're there to do they're there to elaborate on the implications of this event whereas the gospels are there to tell us it happened so, right kind of a, uh, like a difference of genre so to speak yes. yeah cool and, it, and and interestingly the gospels are actually written after a, you know a lot of the letters were, were written or at least a good many of them Mm. So, it's so Doug, um, we mentioned that there's really, there's two pieces of this that really kind of go together. Number one is the actual empty tomb. And the second part of that, you said you, you call them post-mortem experiences, right? Or, or basically what happened after Jesus was raised? Yes. So, so the, the post-mortem, so again, the, the empty tomb itself is, is fairly easy to explain if that's the only fact that needs explaining. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have uh, throughout the, you know, all four gospels, um, Mark is a little bit trickier because Mark has a bit of a funky ending where, uh, if you want to learn more about that, listen to my talk on our SoundCloud page on, uh, the textual basis for the new Testament. But there's, uh, you know, the, there's multiple attestation in the new Testament that Jesus was not only seen, but was hung out with by his followers after his resurrection that he ate with them, right? That Jesus was alive again. And interestingly, the, and this is often pointed out, but sometimes not appreciated, the primary ones, the ones who are there first at the empty tomb and everything, these are all women. And that's, for us, of course, that's not a big deal for us. It's like, we're, we're fine with, a, with women's testimony. In fact, I mean, even in our age, right? Believe all women. So if that's the case, then we should all believe in the resurrection because the women are all telling us it happened, right? But, but back during the, this day, that was a, a different, that was a much different century, story. Right, exactly. Um, they are um, unfit. They are considered unfit to testify in court, um, and uh, and and uh, so if, basically, if, their testimony or their witnessing of Jesus at the tomb would have been almost entirely thrown out. So the fact yes. that Scripture is pointing to the fact that women were the first witnesses. You know, if you were going to embellish this, or if you were going to try to make up a religion for people to follow, that would not be the way to go about it. And, and yeah, and we're not endorsing this, right? We're not endorsing right. this view. This is just how it was viewed in the first century. So the, the Mishnah um, records this, which is a little bit later, but it, 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 it gives us an idea of the, of the attitude towards this. It says this, um, uh, these are considered unfit witnesses, gamblers with dice, those that lend with interest, pigeon racers, that's interesting, Oh, um, dude, I got to give up my side business of racing pigeons, man. You got to you gotta close down your cockfighting uh, uh, gambling operation. Uh, those who trade in the produce of the sabbatical year and slaves. This is the rule. All testimony that a woman is not fit to give, these also are not fit to give. Mm. Okay. So that's just one textual example of, of this. Um, and so, so what, what, what was that that you were reading from? That, that is from uh, one, uh, one of the books in the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah. This is uh, called Ra Rosh Hashanah, which we all know what that sure. means. Right? The, um, uh, chapter one, uh, I guess you could call it verse eight. So outside um, biblical texts. To, yes, to this, give is us some, biblical, this is not a biblical yeah. text. Just giving and, us some kind of context for kind of what some popular beliefs were in this century. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, and, so the, and the point of this, of course, is that you know, if you're an early Christian, you're like, well, how do we make this story as believable as possible? You're not going to say, okay, who are the worst witnesses we could think of? Right. No. Uh, the fact that w people whose testimony was not regarded as valid are the ones who are the 
witnesses in the gospel, again, lends to their credibility, lends a tremendous amount to their credibility, actually, uh, because if you were simply making this up, why, why would you have them as the witnesses? So that's, that's a frequent point that is often made. Now, uh, uh, um, now um, in terms of the postmortem experiences, as I said, some of the letters are a lot earlier than the Gospels, and uh, such goes for, um, for, for uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is written in the early 50s. Okay. And uh, uh, th this passage that we often go back to at the beginning of chapter 15, where Paul describes the gospel, part of what he says is this in verses three through five, he says, for I, for I delivered to you. And as I say this, think about the generations of transmission that this bears witness to. So I'm writing this letter to you now in say AD 53 or so, right? As of first importance, I delivered to you. So now this is before the writing of the letter, what I also received. So there's at least three generations of this tradition being there, right? Mm -hmm. What? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in according with the scriptures, right? And there he goes on to cite the witnesses to Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Um, could you? I'm sorry, you lost me for a second there. In that first, in that first verse, Paul's saying, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." Can yeah. you explain? Sorry, what the point I'm making there is that what this shows is how primitive this the, what Paul is saying here is. So, if all we had was Paul saying Christ died, was buried, and was raised according to the scriptures, right? All you could say is that that belief is in existence at 53 AD when he wrote, wrote the letter to the Corinthians or whichever specific year you want to place Corinthians. Okay. But he's not saying that. He's saying, when I came to you, this is what I said. So he's actually talking, he's, he's, he's jogging their memories about what he preached to them when he first came to them, not mm -hmm. when he wrote the letter, which is many years earlier. Uh, and then... Okay. And, and, and he's not only saying that, but he's saying, and this was handed on to me earlier on. And Paul's conversion, by the way, is probably within a year of Jesus's death and resurrection. It probably is AD 33. Wow. Okay, okay. So Paul's testifying. And so, so not only, so now that's the testimony to the resurrection, but again, the point we're establishing here is the post-mortem mortem experiences. And listen to what is part and parcel with his gospel, right? He doesn't stop there in verse four. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is an early name of Peter, right? He's only referred to that in the when it's referring to the, like, this is an old school name of Peter, in other words. And then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, so, and then he goes on to talk about his personal testimony. So that idea of the postmodern experience is there at the very earliest places in Christian tradition. So there's, and again, this is just a witness to that, that there are appearances. It's clear, right? Like we don't even have to say, and there definitely really did see Jesus raised. All we're making are those two points, empty tomb, postmodern experiences. Um, now, the next part of this is, is really interesting to me, Doug, because a lot of times, you know, the, the counter arguments made, well, sure, maybe they all got together and drank some really strong wine. You know what I mean? Actually, yeah. in Acts, uh, when, when Peter's preaching, they were all kind of saying that. 
Um, oh, right. they just yeah, yeah. They must have drank too much wine. You know what I mean? Maybe this post-mortem experience is everybody just imagining things. Right. But, but on here, Doug, you said that all, all of these experiences were not, they were all physical. They weren't immaterial, right? Right. They're physical. And, and the gospel writers seem to be making the point of that at several points, right? Like, touch my hands and my side. Um, come eat fish and things like that, right? Like that, that, that Jesus is raised physically from the dead. Um, and, and really any explanation for post-mortem experiences um, has to take into account that it's not, we're not just talking about one person, right? In fact, if, if you go across the, the, the varying witnesses, okay, who, who, who did you, to whom did Jesus appear after he was raised from the dead? Mary Magdalene, all along with all the other women who were at the tomb, Salome, Mary, the mother of Joseph, right? Um, Peter, the disciple on the road to Emmaus, uh, both, both, um, both of them, the apostles without Thomas, the apostles with Thomas, the seven by the lake of Tiberias, more than 500 other believers, James, the 11, and those present at the ascension. Right now, some of those overlap, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm naming the disciples, but those are the various instances of appearances that are recorded for us in the scriptures. So the fact of the matter is, is that like, if you're going to say someone was drunk or someone was hallucinating or something, that does, the, the weakness of that is the sheer number of people who were witnesses to the resurrection. Like if you and I got together and dropped acid, right? I might see Mickey Mouse, but that doesn't mean you're going to go around saying, I saw Mickey Mouse too. And that certainly doesn't mean everybody else on staff is going to go around saying, I, I, dropped, I, I dropped Mickey Mouse. I saw Mickey Mouse too, right? No, like it's, that's not how hallucinations work. It's not like group hallucination is not a, a, a plausible way to explain this. So you've just completely discounted the entire plot of Inception. Oh, uh, that's right. Yes, yes. Well- yeah. So One of my favorite movies. The, the top was still spinning at the end, Alex. Okay. Um, uh, so we've so, got, we've got distinct appearances then from yeah. uh, individual to individual. <laughs> now. So those are the two big, so the empty tomb and the fact that Jesus appeared to many after uh, many, many had appearances of his physical self after the, after he had, he had died on the cross. Now to this, I would also like to add the, the fact that, uh, um, so if you're putting those together, you're like, you know, and, and, and the other thing you want to ask is, okay, so now apparently these followers of Jesus come to the conclusion on the basis of these things that Jesus has been physically raised from the dead. Now, the other thing that's interesting to note about that is that that is that belief seemingly comes out of nowhere. In other words, it'd be one thing if they were expecting that to happen. But if one thing's clear from Jesus's conversations with his disciples in the gospels, they do not expect this to happen, right? They, they're, not, they're not saying, oh, I can't wait till Sunday. Come, mm. you know, they're, they're freaking out, hoping that they're saying who's going to be next. They're hidden away behind closed doors. At least the men were, the, the women were out there anointing his body and stuff. Um, uh, they're cowering in the shadows. And uh, one of my one of my favorite accounts of that, by the way, Doug, I, you're just reminding me of. I think it's John. I think it's in John's Gospel where it describes Peter right after right after Jesus is in the tomb and before he appears to them again. Um, basically, they're saying like, "What do we do?" And Peter's like, "I'm 
I'm going fishing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like <laughs> yeah. what do I do? You know what I mean? And he goes He's back to guy. what he, what he said? <laughs> He's such a guy. Yeah. Well, it, you know, the craziest thing about that too, is like Peter goes back to what he knows, right? He's a fisherman. And yeah. it was also the place where he met Jesus, right? When Jesus called him, he was fishing. And so it's yeah. like, it's just this gorgeous moment in scripture, I think, where like you get a little bit of uh, like just Peter's actions immediately after, you know what I mean? And, and who knows, maybe the rooster was crowing early that morning for him to go yeah. out and go fish, there, you know, but it's there's like, definitely some very interesting things in that, in that story. Yeah. Um, none of which we have time to pick apart right now. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm the worst with you, Doug. I can't help it. I ask lots of questions. You're like, you're like my ADD personified. <laughs> um, so, um, but the, the point I'm making here, right, is that um, uh, it's very difficult to explain uh, apart from the act, the fact that it, the part from saying that it actually did happen, how this belief in resurrection arose among them, okay? Because people did not think on this wavelength back then. It wasn't part of their cultural expectation. For example, if I see, if, let's say there was some like crazy celestial event, right? Chances are you'd have a lot of Christians saying, is this the return of Christ? Why? Because they're expecting the return of Christ. They're expecting their prior religious beliefs predispose them to having that belief. Okay. But if you look into ancient literature, the disciples did not have this kind of prior religious belief. So first off, if you look in paganism, the idea of physical resurrection from the dead is something that did not happen and was more, if, if it was entertained, was, was spoken of as something horrible, like a walking dead type scenario, right? Mm-hmm. People stayed dead. They stayed in Hades. Um, and and, and that's, that's, that's what happened after you died. And if you did have a hope, it wasn't that you, your body would come back. It's that, it's that your, your disembodied experience after life would be very nice. And it would, you know, you'd go to a nice place, perhaps. Um, but it, but nobody was thinking, and you know, it would be really awesome though, if we got our bodies back and they were more awesome than ever, right? No, yeah. that's not, that's not there. Um, and so you're saying that Jews, the idea of the belief of a resurrection like this was not a thing. This is not something they were expecting. Right. And even no. up to the crucifixion, the apostles, even after Jesus is telling what's going to happen, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. They're, they're not expecting it. Now, Jewish beliefs are closer to that. And significant elements within Judaism did believe on the basis of texts like Ezekiel 37, uh, Isaiah 26, and Daniel 12 in particular, that there would be an end times resurrection of the dead. Um, and by the way, when I say resurrection, I'm not simply talking about the revivication of a corpse. I'm not just saying that a corpse comes back to life. What I'm saying is you receive a new transformed body that will never die again, right? So Lazarus is not resurrected. He's raised, right? The widow of, of Nain, her son is not resurrected. He is raised. They, they will die again. But I'm talking about final ultimate resurrection by God to giving a body that will, that will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, if you will, right? Now, that sure. belief is present in early Judaism, but n- there's no notion that that would happen before the last day to a single individual. That is completely foreign. In other words, if, if, if that's going to happen, that's going to happen to all of God's people at the end of time. The other way that it's commonly used in Judaism is also as a metaphor for God's restoration of Israel, 
uh, when he brings them back into the land, you know, the messianic age, it's, it, there's a metaphorical use, just like there's a metaphorical use in, within Christianity, right? Like, like I'm living my resurrected life now, you know, like I, I'm yeah. living in that reality now, like that kind of thing. There's a metaphorical use in Judaism. But so it's there in Judaism. But again, not nobody would have been like, well, maybe he's experienced the resurrection because when the resurrection happened, it's going to happen to everyone. So that this belief, uh, um, the best explanation for why this belief arose, uh, if you're looking for it, you can't look for it and say, well, because they expected, they were expecting this to happen to him. This wasn't even on their radar. It wasn't even a possible explanation on the table for what happened to Jesus. Um, so when you put these observations together, okay, you can explain any of them by themselves. So you can explain the empty tomb by grave robbing or something like that. You can that's probably your only really good explanation, by the way, for the empty tomb since the tomb was known, right? If, if um, some have suggested that Jesus was thrown to a mass grave or something and his body was eaten by dogs. But if you're going by what the witnesses tell us, the grave was known. And it was like, right, we've already covered that. Sure. Um, the, and uh, so, so, so you've got the empty tomb, and then uh, the, and if and if you've just got the resurrection appearances, maybe you could get like, well, the early Christian community um, had a lot of wishful thinking, and they couldn't bear it that Jesus was no longer gone, and so then they go pro proclaiming him as risen from the dead or something like that. This is kind of like Jesus seminar type stuff that you get, but the pro problem with that is that the the is is the other point the empty tomb there's an empty tomb right there right so the fact that these two things are existing at the same time this this belief in the postmortem experiences and um and uh or or the postmortem appearances just themselves not even just the belief but the fact that they people did experience Jesus as risen from the dead and there was an empty tomb you need a theory that can explain both of those facts in a climate in which resurrection was not a, a people were not predisposed to giving that as an explanation sure so sure. That, that's where the case becomes strong when you bring those threads together so now last last kind of thing for us doug before we we close up here that there still are some of these alternate explanations right the ones that are that are kind of thrown out there all the time um, and you've got three of them listed here. The first of those is really the conspiracy, right? The disciples right. stole the body, they lied, and basically everybody else is making up that they saw Jesus. Yeah, and, and there's a bunch of different ways to answer this. Uh, again, we saw that this is, this is um, anticipated by Matthew in chapter 28, right? This idea, oh, tell them that the disciples came and stole the body. This is essentially grave robbing by those who would care the most to rob Jesus's body. Um, there's several different problems. Like you might cite like how would Jesus's disciples have overcome the guards at the tomb and things like that. And those are fair. But one thing that I would note is the moral character of the early Christian church, right? That if, when you look at these people, like you're, this would mean that the disciples went out and proclaimed something they knew to be a lie. Okay. And if you look at the kind of, um, First off, if you look at their moral character otherwise, um, I like to think, for example, of this. Now, granted, this is not one of the, 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 the original 11, but you look at Paul, right? And 
I love that we have his letters, including some very, a very personal letter of Philemon, right? Where he's intercepted one of his, this guy, this church leader's escaped slave. And he sends him back to him. And what does he tell him? He tells him, if, if this has cost you anything, the fact that he ran away, charge it to my account, right? Like you're not dealing with charlatans and shysters here. Right. Right. And this goes for a bunch of other stuff that you see throughout the character in the character of the New Testament, right? Selling their possessions and, and giving to people as they had need and taking care of their poor and things like that. And then you go on and, and to the, to the, to the testimony of their lives and how many suffered greatly and, and are, and are, and, and, and several of them are martyred. Um, as a result of this, right? So grave, rob like you can't explain, grave robbing is an, by the disciples, um, you know, this idea that, the, that or, or any, any theory that relies on some kind of knowing conspiracy on the part of the early church leaders, like that just doesn't, that's just very improbable when you think of the character of, the, of early Christianity, the kind of morals that are, that, that are, that are present in the early church. Okay. So uh, the second the one second, of these then, yeah. Doug, yeah, I was going to say the second one is the idea of, of Jesus's death. It was only apparently dead, right? Yeah. So he so wasn't actually is, dead. They put him in the grave and he, he wasn't actually dead. He got up and got out. Yes. This is close to what uh, certain um, Muslim interpreters believe because the Quran denies that Jesus even died on the cross. So this would be the idea that uh, Jesus was mistakenly thought to be dead and was taken down from the cross. Um, again, there's several different ways that you could answer this, but I think the, and the idea would be like the cold of the morning revived him and he got up and, 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 you know, and then proclaimed himself as raised or his disciples, you know, um, and somehow and maybe, strong maybe enough he, after being crucified through his somehow feet. Somehow strong enough. Yeah. And that, stone. But maybe he died shortly after, you know, so that's when he ascended to heaven because he was so hurt from the crucifixion. Mm. Um, I mean, to, to suggest something like this would suggest that we know very little would it could only be made by someone who knows very little about Roman crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion victims, bones have been excavated. Um, you know, you have spikes driven literally through ankles, through wrists. Um, the, the, the people would sometimes die from the flogging itself. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's not to say that like people haven't survived very physically traumatic events, but then to say that the disciple that that the disciples went and 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 proclaimed him as the resurrected Lord of um you know uh, uh, who who is who conquered sin and death um just does does is is not a valid explanation that just is that's just too unlikely. I mean the one that the one that sticks out to me too is that like this one is this one doesn't make any sense to me because. He's hanging on the cross, you know what I mean? And he dies and, you know, it is finished. And then the first thing they do, the Romans make sure he's actually dead. They shove yeah. a spear up into his, yes. into his ribs, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so all of that. Yeah. Another point that's sometimes made with that is that, you know, these guys, if the Romans, Romans knew how to do something, they knew how to kill people. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, there used to be a, there was a torture exhibit that was in Atlantic city a long time ago. And I, I went to it. My mom got me free tickets to it random, but you it's one of the, those, those warm gifts from, from mother. Oh dude, that was one of the worst things I've ever been to. Like I can't stomach what Happy we as humans can, can yeah. do to one another. It's yeah. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. But one of the things I learned, I studied a lot in uh, of Roman and ancient history and Latin and everything else like that. But the Romans actually didn't invent um, crucifixion. They just kind of perfected it. You know what I mean? They really took it to the end of trying to keep people alive for as long as possible and institute the most grueling, excruciating type of pain that they possibly could while they're alive. And yeah. it's crazy. I mean, if the if if Jesus was going to be crucified by the Romans, I mean, they knew what they were doing. You yeah. know what I mean? And they would make sure that he was actually dead. He's so the last one back from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last one yeah. that we have here, we kind of mentioned a little bit previously, but maybe you want to comment on it again, Doug, is the idea of hallucin uh, of hallucination, right? Well, I'll just hit this one again real quickly. Again, like um first off, um, you, you know, it would have to be a massive group hallucination, which we don't really have records of that. You know, like that's not how hallucination works. Um, so and at like, different times too, because he at, appeared at different times, to different exactly, people. Exactly. At different times. And not only that, but uh, this would require an additional explanation for the empty tomb because all this, all this explains Again, these are all uh, these all are attempts to grapple with the two facts, which, by the way, uh, most historians, I can't say all, but most historians, even unbelieving ones, acknowledge these two basic facts. I I probably should have mentioned that earlier, the empty tomb and the postmortem experiences. And Mm -hmm. so what these are are attempts to explain both of those facts, um, other than the idea that he was actually raised by God from the dead. Um, Conspiracy and apparent death. Both explain both of those facts poorly, but they explain both their attempts to explain. This one only explains the appearances. It still requires an additional explanation for the empty tomb. And so it's not, there's several reasons why it's not a very compelling, uh, very compelling to, 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 you know, unbelieving New Testament scholars or scholars of ancient history. And so, you know, um, again, this was kind of like a lightning round, Mm -hmm. but, um, but, but um, the, this is a, a essentially, I think, the, the elements of a powerful case for Jesus being raised from the dead. Right. And for those so of like you who the are- thing, the thing I'm thinking real quick is, is like, so what can we conclude from this, right? If you're looking at this yeah. from just a strictly historical background, you have a lot of work to do, you know what I mean, to try to explain away Jesus's existence. And for me, I always look at this, I'm like, and I remember this even before I was a Christian, I would look at this. It's like, all right, Jesus really existed. We know that. And he was, and he actually died. He actually was killed. And there are a bunch of eyewitnesses to him, not to him being resurrected. So yes. at the end of the day, it's like, what do I do with that? You know yeah, what I mean? I mean? And, and it's, you know, it's easy to kind of just like dismiss this, but the fact of the matter is, is that like, this is the, you know, clearly if, if we're out there looking for truth, clearly Christianity is an option, right? That any thinking person should be considering. Mm -hmm. And these are the facts that you have to grapple with. And it's easy to dismiss this and be like, empty tomb, postmodern experience happened 2000 years ago, weird things happen. I don't know. But it's when you bear down and say, wait, no, how do you actually explain these things? How do you explain the empty tomb, the preaching of the message of the resurrection in Jerusalem, where the empty tomb was there and easily verifiable. How do you explain the num- the sheer number of, of post-mortem appearances? When you actually look here into this and have to figure out an explanation for it, um, that's when the case becomes exceedingly strong, I think. And again, this was very much a lightning round. 
if you're looking for additional sources on this, like Pete, to, if you want to go a little bit further, the names that I would suggest, and these can all be found on YouTube videos or, you know, podcasts or whatever. Um, number one, William Lane Craig is a very, uh, is, is a very, very good Christian apologist who often speaks about this and has debated about this and is uh, excellent. I would, uh, I would recommend his material. You've been big uh, on him recently, Doug. Yeah, he's, 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 he's very helpful. He's, I'm very thankful to the Lord for his ministry, Reasonable Faith, it's called. Uh, Gary Habermas, that's H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, is another one who's known for developing what's called the minimal facts theory, which is very similar to what we're talking about here. Another guy, Michael Licona, L-I-C-O-N-A, and then another, other um, uh, kind of more recently to the scene, but have had a lot of very good positive influence on this kind of study, uh, a married couple, actually, Timothy and Lydia McGrew, M-C-G-R-E-W. And you can find stuff by all of them. Um, uh, uh, one more name, since I've thrown out names that I've found very helpful on this, Peter Williams of Tyndale House, uh, the head of Tyndale House in, in, um, in England. So... Those or if you're like me and you don't really feel like reading all of these books, you can listen to Doug Becker who reads them all for you and, and summarizes them very well. That is true. Yes, you can you could go go to my stuff. But honestly, like I I am I'm on dish duty in my house, and especially with the virus. <laughs> I do two loads of dishes a day. Oof. And so put some headphones in while you do the dishes. <laughs> and listen to no, that's, a, that's a good call, man. Or like literally right now, we've got so much time available. Yeah have a lot of time that are that's available to them now and folks are like oh i'm bored you know what i mean and it's just like how's your walk if, with jesus you know if like, i tilted my camera a little bit th in this direction you would see a mountain of laundry from my family of six <laughs> that i have to fold later today and i will be listening to to content that sharpens my abilities with these things and sharpens my knowledge with this and i highly recommend that you do the same. And those are just some names that I would love it if people in our churches and people, anybody who's listening uh, would, would um, you know, per pursue and get, get to know the material produced by, by those people because they are uh, among the most ablest defenders of this uh, today. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for uh, putting this discussion together. And, and thank you to everybody that was listening in today. Uh, just praying for you guys in the midst of the coronavirus and, and certainly praying this week as we uh, look to celebrate Jesus uh, and the empty tomb. And so if you're looking to do that, we'll be having services tomorrow uh, on Friday and as well as Sunday. And we'll be posting those all over the website and everywhere else. And so thank you so much for joining into a, uh, to Theology Thursday. And we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.